on today's episode of Power of the Towel Part, the Nux Misconduct Network of Podcasts. Seth Jones, could he be coming to the Vancouver Canucks? He will not be signing a contract extension with Columbus. He wants to test free agency. Is there a fit in Vancouver? We get into all of that. Our thoughts so far on the Stanley Cup playoffs. And our guest this week is Sportsnet 650's Sadiar Shaw. Should be a good one. You'll be saying wow every time you use this towel. He's not a person at all. He's a towel. You're a towel. But in Vancouver, mainly it's all about towel power. Are you ready? Welcome to another episode of Power of the Towel Part of the Next Misconduct Network of Podcasts. I'm your host, Nick Bondi. And as usual, please subscribe to the network wherever you get podcasts. One swipe, one tap, as we like to say, leave a review as well. One of these days, one of these days, I will get around to reading them on air while we do this. Of course, we're back to our once a week schedule because this is the off season. And guess what? We still have a bit of Canucks news or rumors to digest here. So Saturday night, Elliot Friedman reporting that Seth Jones, Seth Jones of the Columbus Blue Jackets, will be testing free agency. He will not be signing a contract extension for the Vancouver with the sorry, the Columbus Blue Jackets. Of course, people want to connect it, what I was trying to say, to the Vancouver Canucks. Now, no one's really officially reported that the Canucks have interest in Seth Jones. He may not even want to come here. He may not want to sign a contract extension, but the thinking behind it is, at least my thinking is, the Canucks tried something similar last year with Oliver ekman Larson. That didn't go through. The infamous ran out of time. That caused him to run out of time to sign someone like Tyler Toffoli. Didn't get a guy like Oliver ekman Larson. So I think, you know, Jim Benning, he wants to make the playoffs next year. The blue line is something... That you have to that you have to improve in order to get that team to, to be a playoff team. And Seth Jones seems like a type of guy Jim Benning would would like to acquire. Right? It seems like his mold. So, you know, I was talking about this on the SCT show uh, on Sunday night. Go check out the newest episode. It's out now wherever you get podcasts. But I just I just don't see a fit with the Vancouver Canucks for for a couple of reasons. First of all, let's go over the cap hit. So he's making five point four million dollars next season. That's going to be the last year of his contract, and then he'll be an unrestricted free agent. So if you trade significant assets for a guy like Seth Jones, you will have to you know re-sign him afterwards and he's probably going to want a big ticket a eight year eight million dollar a year ticket new contract or the resign with the vancouver canucks and there's not even a guarantee he will resign with the vancouver canucks he is again a free agent after next season so you're paying for essentially a one-year rental and then you have to worry about resigning him come after next season now the Vancouver Canucks, obviously, they have room this season. They've ha- they're going to have some contracts come off of the books, the likes of Brandon Sutter, Alex Edler, even a guy like Travis Hamnick, names like that coming off the books. But you're going to have to use that space to re-sign Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes to new deals after ELC. So that's gone. People have talked about the 2022 offseason is when the books open up. Roussel will be off the books. Jake Vertanen, if they don't buy him out, which I think they will, but if they don't, he'll be off the books. Louis Erickson. Louis Erickson will be off the books. A guy like Brain Holby, we can add his name to those owners' contracts. He will be off the books. 
that's the that's the time when the Canucks are going to have serious cap room to maneuver around. But if you trade for a guy like Seth Jones, you trade for a guy like Seth Jones, you will have to re-sign him. Presumably, that's why you would want to give up pieces to sign a guy like Seth Jones. And you'll also have to re-sign Brock Besser. So you're using you're in a situation if you trade for Seth Jones again, where yes, he, he, you, you can you could resign him, you would have the room, but you would be in a situation like you are with Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, where you're using up all your cap space to sign two players. Again, Brock Besser is making five point eight seven five next season, and he's a restricted free agent, but he's going to want you know a raise. Seth Jones is going to want a raise. So you're in kind of the same situation again with with the cap. In terms of what you would have to give up to give a guy like Seth Jones, I don't know. He's a one-year rental, so maybe that drives down the price a bit. But at the same time, you know, Seth Jones, he's a big-name defenseman. A a team like Columbus, I guess it depends on if they want to start a rebuild, if they want picks and prospects if they want roster players, because if they're looking to rebuild, if they want picks and prospects, the Canucks can't offer them. Pod Colson's coming in, Hoaglander's coming in. If they ask for one of those two guys, you have to walk away and say no. And after Pod Colson and Hoaglander, they're on the team, they've graduated. The Canucks don't really have any big name prospects left. They'll have the guy who they pick with this first round pick in the 2021 draft. But other than that, they're not going to have anyone. They're not going to have anyone. So if they trade that pick for a guy like Seth Jones, you're losing an asset that could be valuable in the future. A good player on an ELC punching above his weight. Look at all the cup contenders in the playoffs right now. We'll get to our thoughts on the playoffs later. All the contenders, the serious contenders, have at least one player who are on an ELC. Kale McCarr, Colorado. Andrei Svechnikov, Carolina. Those are my picks for the finals. Both guys on ELCs punching way above their weight. Especially a guy like Kale McCarr, right? So, I just don't see the fit for Seth Jones. It would be it would be similar to trying to trade for Oliver ekman Larson last year. Yes, he's a good defenseman. But is it worth the opportunity cost? Is it worth giving up cap flexibility after next season to trade a guy for a guy like Seth Jones? Again, it depends on what Columbus would want. If they want, you know, rosters, players, picks, prospects. But I just don't see how much a guy like Seth Jones, and I know the Canucks need a defenseman. They need to upgrade that blue line. I know that. I know that. By the same time, again, is it worth giving up the cap flexibility in the future to trade for a guy like Seth Jones? I don't know. I don't know. You know, the analytics guys, say he's washed. The eye test guys say he's still, you know, a top 15 defenseman. I think that's what Tambier said last night on the SCT show. He's a top 15 defenseman. The truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. He's, he's, he's still, I think, a top four defenseman for sure. But again, is it worth the cost that you're going to have to give up and the cap and giving up cap flexibility in the future to re-sign a guy like Seth Jones or Brock Besser next season? I don't know. The more I think about it, the more I'm I'm kind of convinced it wouldn't it wouldn't be a good fit for the Vancouver Canucks. Now by the time you listen to this, we'll be one day away from the NHL draft lottery. It's on June 2nd, Wednesday. Let's be real. The Canucks the Canucks aren't gonna win the draft lottery. We've been through this before. Don't get your hopes up. I think they stay around where they are. I think they're have the ninth best odds. They'll probably they'll probably stay around there, right? Like I don't see them moving up. I can definitely see them moving back. That's just as per tradition. But at the same time, I think this draft, because of COVID-19 and how it's affected junior leagues around the world, it's gonna be this top 10 is gonna be a crapshoot. It's gonna be a crapshoot. Anyways, as we mentioned off the top, our guests this week is none other than Sportsnet 650's Sadi Arshaw. Just a minute, don't hang up! Yellow. You'll have to speak up, I'm wearing a towel. Okay, so we now welcome on the Power of the Towel podcast, part of the Next Misconduct network of podcasts. This man works for Sportsnet 650. You can catch him on there every day, 
from four to seven. It is Sadiar Shah, the first recurring guest in the history of Power of the Towel. Sad, how are you doing today, my man? I'm doing great, man. How about you, Nick? Everything I'm right? I'm am doing great. And uh, well, let, let's start with this, okay? So you came on last February. You were the first. You are the first recurring guest. We have to do a bit of a performance review before we uh, <laughs> before we get started here. Um, how do you think you did last time? I know it's been last a while, but like, how, how do you feel you did? I, honestly, I can say I, I'm pretty sure I was playing hurt last time. I, I think mm-hmm. I, uh, I I was pretty sick and I had a, had a pretty bad uh, flu. Actually, I never I know I get colds and stuff every once in a while. I don't get flus very often. It was the first time in like a decade I had a really bad flu. And I remember I was like, I had cough fits on your show. I, I, was, I was doing my best, but I, I remember I gave it everything I had. Then like two days later, I had to like call in sick at work because I just had nothing left. Yeah, so that, 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 that was like my MJ game with you. That, that was your yeah. that was your flu game, which we found out in the last dance was really the food poisoning yeah. game, right? Yeah. Now that was, well, your, that was your version of it. It's probably self-inflicted, to be honest. Well, you know what? I'll, I'll give you props for even coming on the show at that point, because obviously you were deathly sick. I had just started the show. So I'll give you major props for just for just showing up for just showing up. Attendance marks. I got full attendance. No, you, you, I know how much radio guys don't like, you know, missing, missing the day of work. Like it's, it's, you know, you like the Iron Man streak, but I, I appreciate you coming on last time. No, it was fun, Nick, man. We had a good time. I remember uh, you started off with some chirps. You got me going and we had fun. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I remember it. It was, yeah, I guess for 30, it was right before the pandemic hit. Right. So yeah, we had 30, 15 months. I had a great time in the start of sports podcast yeah. right before all sports <laughs> shut down. Great timing. Perfect. Um, okay. So, uh, I wanted to have you on because this is, it's been a couple of weeks since the Vancouver Canucks season ended. And I wanted to do kind of just, just an episode to just review what happened in this. It was a crazy season. And I just want to go over what happened this season. Okay. So we had the logo controversy. You remember that? Oh yeah. You remember that? Yeah. The uh, Mark Donnelly being fired over Twitter mm-hmm. by Francesco Aquilini. We had obviously the P1 COVID outbreak. Finishing seventh in the North Division, Ian Clark, who at the time of recording still may or may not be back. We're, we're not really sure. You know, Niels Hoaglander having a great, a fairly good rookie season. I would say great considering expectations. Fire Benning, the Fire Benning plane. Jim Benning surviving not once, but twice getting fired. <laughs> he survived twice. This man survived twice. The hair, I guess the reverse retro spray can jerseys which they lost every game and they will probably never wear again. Uh, obviously the Jake for Tannen situation, mm. green, Travis green, not getting a contract extension until right after the season. And after all that, and after all that, nothing's really changed. Jim Benning's coming back. Travis green is going to come back. It sounds like, you know, the assistant coaches, coaching staff is going to come back. Even Travis, even, you know, Ian Clark, He's probably coming back. Not really his fault this season, but it's just like in, in any other organization, I would feel that someone would fall on the sword, so to say, after this season, right? Like someone's head would have to roll, but it seems like they are not really, no one's really interested in doing that with the Vancouver Canucks. It's status quo, same as usual. When we were kind of talking, joking about uh, the Jordan flu game before, which was food poisoning, like this is like the, the last dance. But the inverse yes. of it, it's like, it's like the worst team. Everything's gone wrong. But let's run it back for one let's more time. Back. Why not? Let's run it back. And and, and I do believe this maybe the biggest change we'll end up seeing is probably with the roster. Um, I think you know that's kind of the way it's trending towards, especially when we excite the fan base. What can they do, right? But yeah, I mean, it's as far as you know your level of confidence with how the season went. It's a season from hell, and everybody's coming back now. What's going to be the change roster, which we mentioned potentially? And how much do the Sedins change things, right? Like when they officially join the organization, which will happen here, you know, coming up, when they officially do, is that enough of a refresh? Is that enough of a um, revitalization for this organization that people say, you know what, we have new voices, we feel like we we can move forward. I don't know if the Sedins themselves are going to be enough to win the fan base over, but it is pretty funny that you've gone through this year with so many failings and disappointments and so many things were handled so poorly and everybody's coming back. I do think we all kind of agree the coaching staff being back is justified. Jim being back, well, you know, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot to be discussed on his angle. But as far as the coaching staff goes, I think most people, you know, would agree that even if you don't like, like Travis, he got the most out of this group, especially last season. And this year was an absolute disaster. 
But, but how do you excite the fan base for next year? Like, what's going to be the thing that is going to revitalize everybody? Because I'm not sure the Sedins are going to be enough. When you're bringing the coach back and the GM back, what's going to be the change? And that leads me to believe, you know, Francesco and, and Jim really want to make some sort of a splash this offseason. Okay, so let's talk about that splash. Uh, Seth Jones. This is kind of the big thing on, on, on Twitter recently. And I don't think anyone's actually officially linked him to the Canucks. It's just a lot of people like myself putting two and two together because they obviously went really hard after Oliver Ekman Larson last mm-hmm. offseason. So it sounds like management really wants, you know, a big name top four defenseman to come in. I, I was on the SCT show last night with all those guys and we were talking about it. And the more I think about it, the more I just don't see the fit because look, look, you trade for Seth Jones. First of all, he is kind of a rental. Like there's no guarantee he's a UFA after the 2022 season, right? Like there's no guarantee that he's going to want to resign here. Like he, he, he specifically said he wants to test free agency. So it's not like you're trading, trading him and then you're able to lock him up. So there's that also, I think, you know, there's obviously, they're going to have a lot of cap room, the Canucks this off season, mm. but you have to lock up Elias Patterson and Quinn Hughes. They're going to go for big races. Next off season is theoretically when the books really open up. You obviously got like Louis Erickson. We can even throw brain Holpe's contract into there already guys like Antoine Roussel, those deals, Jay Beagle, I think as well, those deals open up. Right. But if you get a guy like Seth Jones, you have to not only pay, you're using that cap space in 2022 to pay him because he wants to raise and also Brock Besser. So and if you trade for Seth Jones, you're kind of in the situation in 2022 that you are in this year where you have two key pieces that need big paydays. And, you know, I, you know, there's the analytics people, the people who are in super analytics say Seth Jones is washed. He sucks. And then you have the eye test people who say like, I think Tambier said on the podcast, he's like a top 15 defenseman in the league. Uh, the truth is the truth is somewhere in the middle, probably, right? Like he's probably like a pretty good top four, maybe even top two defenseman. I just worry that, you know, they're probably going to want a lot for Seth Jones, right? They're probably going to want like a first round pick. And for the Canucks situation, like I mentioned this on, on their show last night, that like the guy on the ELC punching way above his weight is so huge for a cup contender. Like, right. just look at the playoffs last night. Look at Kale McCarr. Kale McCarr is crossing up people on the ice like he's on an and one mixtape. <laughs> like, and he's, and he's making like, my Lou. yeah. Yeah. And he's making like less than a million this season. Andre Sveshikov making less, you know, still on his ELC with uh, Carolina. Like, you need those guys. If you want to be a serious cup contender, you need those guys who are on their ELCs where are punching way above their weight. And I don't know if the Canucks can afford to, to give that up where they are right now. Well, one thing, number one, you're right. You can't make that trade unless you know you can extend him, right? So it would always mm-hmm. be contingent on what will it take to extend you? Do you want to be extended? And if those two things kind of match up, then you can move on to the trade conversation. Because I am not against the idea of trading for Seth Jones and extending him. That all depends on what the money is going to be for him. I know the analytics stuff for the last couple of years hasn't been great for him. I was talking to some people around the league that have some proprietary data that's a bit more comprehensive than the shot chart stuff we see. And let's just say that that's been a lot kinder to Seth Jones. And I think people around the league look at that and that have, you know, a bit more substantial data on things and kind of know the context a bit more. They're not as worried about, you know, how his game's gone the last year or two. And there's a lot of contextual stuff about his happiness, lack thereof, how they're playing, how he fits in, philosophical changes. And he's still young enough. And if you look at defensemen, how they curve that, you know, there's, there's, definitely a chance that at 28, 29, 30, he plays really well and continues to you know, take that next step. You can see how many, how many D men do we see of that caliber? They actually play really well yeah. when they get into their early thirties. Right. So if you get them through that stretch, I'm not against it. It all comes down to what the price is. How about this? Hypothetically, if you know, you can resign him and he's real willing to sign, let, let's put that figure at 7.8. Okay. You know, that he would sign for six years. That seems like an oddly specific number. I'm just making it up, okay, right? Okay, okay, make it up. Yeah, okay, okay. Just, up. Just, just so the reason it. I say because um, I don't think he's gonna. Get, so Dougie Hamilton is probably looking at an eight million dollar contract, right? Eight, eight and mm. a half this year. That's what he what he's gonna ask for. Seth Jones is coming is gonna come in below Dougie Hamilton because Dougie's been far more prolific the last few years and his point scoring is so much higher. So he's probably gonna get a hair less than Dougie. So let's say Dougie gets eight and a half. I think he gets a million less or seven hundred less. So let's say seven and a half to eight million. Seven and a half to eight. I'd be willing to do it for Seth Jones if you're trading Nate Smith and a 2022 first. Okay. So, yeah, if go, see, so if you do Nate Smith, cause you're moving the money out and that's four more years, 
So if you're moving Schmidt and not this year's pick, but next year's pick, you can make a conditional that it's top five protected or whatever it is. If that's the price, I'd be willing to do it. Yeah, and that's the that's the thing I, I mentioned uh, as well is what do the Blue Jackets want? Because right. if they want picks and prospects, I think you got to walk away if you're the Canucks because mm-hmm. I think, you know, a couple of people have mentioned this, but like after Pod Colson plays next year in the NHL, like, Canucks don't really have like that big name prospect that's going to come through the ranks. And really you can say like, he's going to be uh, on right. the NHL roster at, at least. Right. Like, so the Canucks need that guy, but if they want Nate Schmidt, but yeah, sure. Take Nate Schmidt, take a, take a first round pick. But I think, you know, I think Wierenski is also going to be a UFA, I, I believe, or an RFA or something like that. So if Wierenski also says, Hey, uh, I don't want to resign here either. Then the, the Blue Jackets may look at it and say that, uh, we got to rebuild this. We got to, you know, yeah. tear it all down. And I got, and I, Hey, I got ripped online because I suggested, would you trade a 20, would you trade a first round pick in Pud Colson for Patrick line? So if you want to trade right. like a first round pick and Nate Schmidt, like, yeah, I think that's, I think yeah. I'd do that if I'm the Canucks, but for Columbus, it's a totally different story. Well, that's the thing, right? But here's the thing with Columbus, how much leverage are they going to have to, because he's in the final year of his contract has a 10 team, no trade list. So he can, so he can, if he, if he wants to get creative and say, here are teams I don't want to go to that would want me, he can essentially take out half the league because half the league is not going to be – there are at least five or six teams that won't be able to do it no matter what. And then if you take another 10 teams off your list, that means all of a sudden that becomes about half the league potentially. How many teams can actually go out and do it? And he's in the final year of his contract. Players in the final years of their contract usually don't get a massive bounty. You're talking about a first-round pick and a prospect. Yeah. It's like a trade deadline deal, right? So to me, it's – so I've asked around a little bit to see what, what is the valuation of Nate Schmidt. So essentially, I mean, for, uh, for Seth Jones, the evaluation would be a first-round pick, a young prospect, a good prospect, and a third piece, whatever that is. The third piece is usually whatever, right? You're talking about a B prospect, you know, maybe a Zach McEwen, Highmore. You throw somebody in that can play as your third guy, right? So I think the third piece has to be in there. But they would probably want from Vancouver, Rathbone and a first and a third, or and, and like a third piece. I would guess that would be what they would want. But... If they're also trying to be competitive, which you, you got Bjorkstrand signed, you have Liney you're trying to sign, and Wierenski, he may want out, but are you really staring at a rebuild? Or are you staring at a we want to get better really quickly too at the same time? They have three first-round picks this year. So if they get Nate Schmidt and a first-round pick in 2022, that means they have three extra first-round picks the next two years, and they have a bevy of cap space. If they want it, they can make a trade like that. Get a guy like Nate Schmidt. He's a top four defenseman that plays for them, so they don't need to worry about that. And all of a sudden, they have three extra picks to pedal to do whatever they want in the offseason to prove their team. So, yeah, if you look at it from, so if you look at it from Columbus's perspective, I think the first round pick is most important. And the fact that they have three first round picks in this year's draft, I would guess they want a 2022nd first because the 2022 first probably be valued more because people look at it as a normal year. The draft might be stronger, and there is a bit more value to that draft pick so for columbus i think more than anything they want that first round pick and they want somebody either a prospect or a guy that can play for them does that mean vancouver gets a deal done no but i do think if you're willing to move schmidt in a 2022 first and like a third piece that's whatever i do think you'd be in the conversation because i just don't see how columbus in the final year of Seth jones's contract with a limited no move clause no trade clause how they're going to be able to maximize his value and get a bounty those prices just don't get paid for guys with one year left on their contract yeah, that's a good point. And I think, you know, it's 7.8 for the Canucks for a defenseman locked up for long-term. Like if he could be that long-term fit beside a guy like Quinn Hughes, like it's definitely worth it. I just, the more I think about it, if you want to give up a, a picks and, and prospects, essentially, if, if you want to give up a guy like Nate Schmidt, then go ahead and do it. But Pod Colson, even a guy like Hoaglander, I don't think I'd do it. But let's go, let's go back. Or, or even, even Rathbone, right? Like, it, it, I, yeah, I it's definitely a guy like Rathbone. Because you need, you're right, because you still need a cheap defenseman to come out and play for you, right? So like, you can't move Rathbone, you can't move Put Coles, and you can't move Hogman. You just can't. You simply can't. The only asset you can move is your first-round pick, either this year or next year. And even that's like comes with a lot of risk. But that's the only somewhat flexible, you know, high-end asset you have that you could technically move. Because you simply cannot afford to move yeah. Put Coles and Hoglander and Rathbone. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let, let, let's go back to this last season for the Canucks as a whole. So I was listening back to, my, to a few of my podcasts from beginning of the season, kind of our previews for this season. And looking back, I think we all knew deep down the Leafs were probably the favorites to win the division, but mm-hmm. just my pure hatred of the Toronto Maple Leafs did not allow me to say that. I, I, I could not utter it. So, you know, 
a lot of the conversation was like this division's wide open. Anyone can win it. In hindsight, yeah, yeah at least we're always going to win the division. Now we're recording this Monday before game seven. Fingers crossed that they choke it away. I would love nothing more than a Toronto Maple Leafs choke job in a season like this. But anyways, I, th- I thought the Canucks had a chance at least making the playoffs. They could have been, you know, a top four team in this division. They had the, you know, the, uh, I know they lost, you know, a, a bunch of pieces at the beginning, but my rationale was it was going to be a crazy season. They still had, you know, a fairly decent top six, even without Tyler Foley. Because you remember in the bubble, Foley was injured a lot of the time, and they still managed to. Games. Yeah, he, yeah, he's played a couple of games, but he was injured for mm-hmm. a chunk of it, and they still managed to get the game, game seven of the second round. So the top six was there. The goaltending was a bit of a question mark. The defense, maybe uh, it, it could have it could have been either way. But I still thought the Vancouver Canucks had a shot at being a playoff team, and it all it all went to shit. Like you can start from that two nine and two February. And it just kind of tanked from there. That seems to be the, the turning point in the season, at least on my end. But where do you think this season turned so sour for the Canucks? Can you pinpoint one like certain instance, or is it just kind of a combination of things that turned out to be just a terrible season for the team? It was it was definitely the first two few weeks of the season. I mean, that that's where the season was done, right? I mean, the yeah. Canucks, and I think we all agreed. I mean, I was with you. I thought they would be a playoff team. I thought they would make the playoffs this year for sure. And but the thing we always said was they can't afford to get off to a bad start and they can't afford to have major injuries. And they were actually pretty good injury wise, but they lost their best player in Pedersen for most of the season. Right. So they got off to a bad start, which was going to be impossible for them to recover from. And then the best player goes down and the COVID thing happened and they just could never recover from it. I don't think they're as bad as the season show, right? Like, you know, there, there are separate conversations to be had. There is direction conversation, Jim Benning conversation, and your lack of faith and, you know, him and all that sort of stuff. And then there is the, okay, let's just be as objective as possible about this year in this roster. They're a pretty good bounce back option for next year. Like, I think if you want to make bets on certain Canucks players to bounce back next year, the team to bounce back, they're a good team to bet on. Does that mean they're going to be a contender next year? No. Does it mean they even make the playoffs? No, it doesn't even mean that. It just means that they are going to outperform this season by a wide margin next year. They're going to be over 500, most likely. They're going to have their players bounce back. But are they going to be able to get to that 95-point range, 92-point, 95-point range to be a playoff team? That's going to be the big question. But I see them easily being a high 80s, low 90s team next year. But more than anything, I think, and it's hard to kind of put your finger on or nail down exactly what happened, but part of the season was almost lost before it began, right? And with how these guys felt about the group and how things happened and unraveled. And with the, with the players that left, I do think early on through training camp, they're like, okay, you know what? Let's try to make this happen or whatever. And we'll try to have success. And they played well that first game against Edmonton, remember? Uh, when when yeah. they started, I was like, wow, these guys are actually moving the puck. They're playing exciting hockey. The defense looks good. And as soon as they hit some adversity, that leadership vacuum was so apparent on the team. And it was pretty jarring because I know on TV it looked bad. I'm telling you, Nick, seeing it in person, I've never seen a Canucks team look that bad as I saw that Canucks team look early in the season. It was absolutely embarrassing. I, you know, I made, I made the point a number of different times. If there were 18,000 witnesses that watched those games, you would have been appalled at the lack of effort. You would have been appalled at, at how amateur this group looked. It was embarrassing how bad they looked. When you see a team look that bad and that disoriented, it goes beyond not being ready, right? It goes to like something else is going on with the team. Now, is it infighting? Is it, you know, a lack of ambition? Is it just feeling bad about things? I think it was a number of things that snow, snowballed. And I think that initial situation with Miller and Ben with the COVID thing, not to say there was anything, you know, iffy going on behind the scenes, but that added a lot of stress early on in the season. And as soon as things started unraveling, that leadership group and that core just fell apart. And I don't know how that happened, but instead of, you know, having guys step up in the locker room and trying to get, get, it, get themselves together, they kind of fractured a bit. You could see from their body language. And it was really interesting because the coaching staff, I think, was trying to get them back on again and tried to, like, you know, inspire them in certain ways. But it's just going in one ear and out the other. And I think as much as they didn't have practice time, I think the biggest issue they had, they had no time to sit down and talk to guys. Like, it was always, like, through a lot of meetings and stuff like that. And I do think not having – Tanev and Markstrom early in the season was a big, big loss for a lot of these guys. I think what, when the way what Pedersen was going through early on, and I know Friedman mentioned this as well, what some of the other guys were going, going through, when, when things went sideways, there wasn't, some, there wasn't a voice that could calm things down in the room. And I do think, you know, that's, that's a problem, right? And that's not a problem necessarily for, 
you know, most teams have to go through that, but it was really interesting how much they misjudged what it would be like early in the season if things went wrong, especially having these guys leave the team. Like, I don't think they, they got the message across to the guys well enough about, okay, why Markstrom left and why Tanev left and how we're going to try to get through this. So as soon as, you know, they hit the skids, there was nobody really there to kind of take over leadership wise and try to calm the group down. And it just spiraled and spiraled and spiraled. And I think that's why you heard Travis a number of times say the team is immature. They don't know how to handle these situations. Well, I, I remember saying at the time, like it looked like, you know, they obviously they missed guys like Tanev and Markstrom, like you mentioned, and that's maybe uh, contributed to the way that the, the team spiraled. But I remember saying at the time, and I still believe it, like, man, this is the National Hockey League. You cannot expect to be playing with your buddies yeah. your entire career. Like if you're expecting that, you're in for a bad time. Like I'm like people like to say all the time, it's a business. Players like to say it's a business, you know, management as well. Like that's the honest truth. And it, like, I'm worried about the team. I was worried about at the time. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm still worried about it. We'll, I guess we'll see next season. But if you're, again, if you're expecting to play with your buddies your whole career, like you're, you're in for a bad time. I'm yeah. sorry. No, absolutely. Right. And, and I do think like, I have no issue with them not signing Markstrom and Tanev. I mean, I, and I think we talked about this too before, Nick. Like, I would never give Markstrom six times six. I had no, no. interest in giving Tanev more than a one-year deal. Even a one-year deal, I'm like, ah, okay, one, maybe. If you, like, if you do two years, like, I'll hold my nose and be like, I don't like it, but hey, whatever. Three years, I don't touch. Four years, five years, like, give me a break. I'm not touching, you know, the contract Calgary gave. The issue to me more than anything was that lack of ambition and how the players just weren't sure what was going on. I, I think, and if you strip it all down, and this is why, why to me messaging is so important, getting through to you guys is so important too, and, and them being very well aware of what you're trying to accomplish as an organization, because they came together as a group in that bubble, right? And they really all felt like, okay, like he's our MVP, Markstrom, Tandem's our guy. Like, okay, if we're moving forward here, even if, even if those guys don't come back, what is our ambition? Like, okay, what are we trying to do? And I think there was a sense of, are we trying to win? Are we not? Are we just punting? And I think that some guys kind of got the sense that the team was punting on this year. And I think they pretty much, the organizations pretty much admitted that they punted it this year. I mean, just based on Francesco's wording and saying, hey, we're disappointed, but hey, we're going to start spending again. And he pretty much admitted that, hey, we're not, we didn't do as much this past year. And players aren't stupid. They could see the lack of ambition. So I think that that was a bit demoralizing, especially when things went awry early in the year. Marks from shutting them out to Foley scoring, going ham on them, right? And they're like, man, these guys are just feeding us and they were on our team. And I think that was really demoralizing for them. So I think all those things kind of snowballed and yeah, some bad luck and everything too. More than anything though, when you lose guys like that, you got to make sure that your core guys understand what your plan is. Right. Yeah. And I think them not fully understanding or not being fully aware of what the plan was created more issues. So when things went awry, they're like, what are we doing this for? And I think not having Travis signed early on, they were like, I mean, is he even going to come back? Like, who cares at this point? Like, I think there was a lot of like dejection and demoralization early on with this group. And it took them a really long time to get over it. And I think they needed a break. They needed some practice time, but they just needed time to get over the heartache, essentially. Like, it's like a bad breakup, but they just needed time to get over it. And that's essentially what, how the beginning of this year was. And a lack of communication, I think, caused more trouble than there needed to be. Okay, so we had the brutal February get two nine and two, and then they start picking it up sort of in March. Like a lot of people saying it's on the back of you know spectacular goaltending, yeah. sorry by Thatcher Demko, and there's, pro there's probably a lot of truth to that. But they play better in March, and then they have those two losses against the Winnipeg Jets, and then we have the the outbreak, the COVID P one variant outbreak at the time, and I, I, it's safe to say that's probably the worst outbreak in North American professional sports this year. It was mm -hmm. lots of stories about you know, the players getting sick and not only the players getting sick, the families as well. It was, it was a brutal situation. Delayed the, the season for the Canucks by about like two and a half, three weeks. They were still playing during the playoffs, but I think a, a, a lot of people want to know just the long-term ramifications of this outbreak for the organization, because obviously JT Miller came out in that press conference and said what he said, you know, we're not ready. We need some more time. And he essentially, you know, I thought, you know, I, I, Bo Horvat and Tanner, I think it was Bo Horvat came out before him. I, I can't remember. I remember Tanner Pearson before JT Miller coming out the day before. And I remember thinking like he came as close as you can to crossing that line, to ripping like 
the people who are in charge of the schedule and this outbreak and handling this outbreak, right? He came about as close as you can to crossing that line to, you know, saying some real shit, so to say. And then JT Miller comes on and, you know, he lays it all out there. He, he pretty much lays it all out there. And I think it was a, a conscious effort by the Canucks because while we know how JT Miller is, we, you know how you've interacted with him plenty of times, you know how he is. He's going to say what he feels. So to say like they had no idea that he was going to say what he said, not anyone said that, but it was very, it was a very telling thing for JT Miller to come out and say like, we're not ready. Right. Like it yeah. was a, it, it was very telling. I, I think a lot of people want to know Sat, like what are the long-term ramifications of this outbreak for the organization? Because, you know, many people have said it, there has to be, you know, a lot of unhappy campers. So to say after the way that was handled. Right. Well, I think, I think there was a lot of confusion, right? And I think this has been well-documented too. And I think, I think, again, it comes down to a communication issue here. Now, is it the league who's at fault because of the communication issue? Is it the players that are at fault? One thing about the league is they're really bad at communicating. They are absolutely horrendous at communicating, which should not be a surprise when it comes to the NHL yeah. and how they handle things, but they're really bad at communicating. So I do think there was at one point some frustration from the organization itself because they're like, we're not – you know, we're trying to figure this out, but we're not hearing the things we need to hear. And here's the thing, right? So when things come out, it's about putting things in proper context, right? Like it's, yes, their players were upset. Um, yes, the team was frustrated. Yes, the league was confused. But it wasn't necessarily because the players weren't necessarily frustrated because they felt like Jim and the organization hate them, right? Like that's not what they felt. Okay. Um, you know what I mean? Like that, that's not really what it was. I think the biggest confusion here was, why do we not know exactly what's happening? You know what I mean? Like, why don't we quite know what's happening? And hey, was, should Jim have done a better job of getting that message across to the leadership group about, okay, you know what, guys? Um, no matter what, come Friday, if you guys don't pass your medicals, you're not going to play. Because that's one of the things that I've figured out. Because I mean, one of the things that the league came out, uh, the team came out and said afterwards was, we were always under the understanding that, that Saturday game was always going to be contingent on the medicals on Friday. Cause that was going to, you know, determine whether guys were up to conditioning yet or feeling good enough for them to be able to play hockey. The players, I don't know if they knew that or if they didn't trust that because the team's understanding was, Hey, the game was never promised. Cause we always had to wait for the medicals. I think it was Thursday or Friday. They had to do the medicals. Yeah. So but the players themselves, whether it was they didn't trust that the medicals would be done properly or that they didn't know that, felt like they had to force the issue. Whereas from the league, they kind of thought, well, we always kind of knew that the medicals were going to determine. We were never going to force you guys to play. If the doctors came out and said, hey, these guys can't play, you weren't going to go. But for whatever reason, that communication either wasn't strong enough or wasn't made. Because there was confusion, again, because the team went all of a sudden like, you know, we, we get it. Like we understand the players are frustrated, but you know, they don't have to play. Like nothing's been guaranteed yet. It was always going to come down to those medicals, but for whatever reason, there wasn't good enough communication about that being a medical, or there wasn't trust that those medicals would be done, you know, on the up and up and that they wouldn't force these guys to play. Whatever the case was, there was some miscommunication one way or another, or a mistrust about how the process was going to play. And that's what's frustrated the players more than anything, but from the league's perspective and from what, what the team had known, it was always going to be contingent on team doctors clearing enough players after their illness to be able to play. And because it was a P1 variant and because, you know, it takes longer to get over your symptoms, it was all, it was always somewhat assumed by the medical medical people that it was not going to be that game. But for whatever reason, that communication wasn't strong enough through the league and through the team. And I think that was where the biggest frustration was. It wasn't necessarily about like, Oh, we hate Jim. We hate this organization. I know there was some, some concern about, Hey, maybe there wasn't, enough uh, talking to the guys when they weren't feeling well. And Hey, I can't speak to that. That's something that maybe the players can, you know, one day speak to, I know they don't want to go on the record with that. Maybe they felt a certain thing, but I think the biggest frustration Nick was with the lack of communication and how that entire situation unfolded. Not because they felt like they, I don't think the players felt the team was going to force them to play. Like, I don't think they felt that they just mm -hmm. didn't know what was going to happen. Well, you know, the, the, the other thing that kind of set alarm bells off around here was Bo Horvat when he was asked about like the support, the support of, uh, of the players. And he went out of his way to not mention ownership, right? Yeah. Like it was like, if that set off alarm bells and it's from Bo Horvat, who I know from your dealings and from just watching the press conferences, Canucks fans know 
This man's like from the from the Henrik Sedin mold. Like he knows what he knows what's being asked, and he knows like how to articulate what he wants to say. So to not say something about like ownership or at, at the time was set off a lot of uh, alarm bells, right? It did. Now, now, see, because I, I got the same thing, and I'm like, uh oh, when I saw this and I heard the same thing, yeah. I started cringing. I'm like, that's no good. But you know, I started looking into it. But here, here's the thing. Here, here's where it doesn't add up to me, right? Because a big driver to get Pearson signed was Bo. And I know mm-hmm. Dolly Wallen also mentioned this too, uh, but I, that was my understanding that Bo pushed on Pearson and they listened to him. And I do think that Bo, and you've heard his comments after the season, like really wants the team to be aggressive again. And is really like, Hey guys, like, I don't think he said, I don't think he said at all that he's going to leave in two years. I don't, I don't think he said that at all, but I do think he's kind of been like, what what the fuck, right? Like, hey, we we had a we've had a messed up season. You know what I mean? Like, wh- where are we going here? Like, we're we're trying to win, right? We're trying to like be a good team again, right? So I do think there might be some, you know, some some maybe some encouragement from Bo to say, hey guys, like, you know, we, we better be in this to be a playoff game. I, I'm not I'm not going to be here to miss the playoffs again or whatever. I don't think he wants out. I don't think that's happened. But I do think there's some frustration about how how things have gone. Bo just does not strike me as a guy who's going to go to the media. And then, and say something like that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like my, I think he just didn't quite understand the question and believe it or not, Nick, most of the players that like, half listen to our questions anyways, and then like, kind of like shoot off and spout off a cliche or whatever. I find that hard to believe with a guy like Bo Horvat. Like he seems like, again, he's from like the Hendrick Sedin mold of captaincy. No, like, right. No, I know. But like th- th- that one, I'm just not sure. Like I don't quite buy. Like, hey man, I've reported a lot of stuff, and the team hasn't been happy with me this year with with my criticism and stuff like that too. So it's not, you know, I'm not trying to defend anybody, but I'm just not sure it adds up to that way. You know what I mean? I, I just don't think maybe Bo was trying to get some sort of message across. I don't think he was trying to leave out ownership and management that way. Like I don't think that's what he was trying to do. I yeah. don't know what he was trying to do, but I don't think that was necessarily what he was trying to do. It doesn't. It doesn't add up because literally they signed his guy like two days before. Mm-hmm. So we are with Sadiar Shah of the People Show, Sportsnet 650. Uh, I got to ask your thoughts about this whole Jim Benning situation. And again, like I've explained many times on this show, Jim Benning is like a cockroach after a nuclear bomb goes off. He will find a way to survive. He just, this guy just finds a way to survive. What other GM in recent hockey history can you say has survived being fired twice in the span of two months? Or three or three months, I guess it, it, it was wild. So I remember uh, in February, after you know, in the middle of that brutal stretch for the Canucks, a lot of reports saying uh, Jim Benning was you know on the hot seat. They could make a move, and then we had the infamous, I guess now, uh, Twitter thread from Francesco Aquilini right before the uh, Saturday game against the Toronto Maple Leafs, saying like I don't have plans to make changes. I think you said it at the time. It was time, you know, for to put up or shut up. It was time yeah. to to back the guy. Or, you know, find another replacement. They decided to stick it out for the rest of the season. And, of course, what happened with, I think, you know, the, the P1 variant COVID outbreak, I think the Jake Vertan situation had something to play to do with it as well. And just the overall step back this team took, it sounded like Jim Benning was on the hot seat yet again. And I, and I remember I remember texting with someone I trust about the, uh, the situation, and he said 10 to 15% chance Jim Benning is back 10 to 15%, which means there's still a chance. Right. But I was thinking there's a, there's a pretty good chance here that the Canucks are going to move on from Jim Benning, but I was not going to believe it for sure until I saw that tweet from the official Canucks account <laughs> saying Jim Benning was, was, yeah. However they're going to frame it. He, he was let go. Yeah. He would decide to part ways, what have you. Right. It, it's like Charlie Brown, the football I've been through that. I've been through this too many times, man. I've been through this too many times. I, I can't, no, I know. Oh, I, yeah. I'm still with you, man. Like people, like I, I, it's like the Jake Vertanen thing. Like I'll believe Jake's gonna get traded when he gets traded because people have been mm-hmm. trying to trade Jake. People have been trying to fire Jim for like seven years, and he's still standing. One way or another, he's still here, right? Um, like I, I do think it's funny because you know Francesco came out and said, you know, you know, all these rumors, there's no truth to it. So whether there was truth to yo know, Jim losing his job or not, there was a, there was, there was definitely a sense of impending doom in the organization, right? There was a lot of looking over your shoulder, like what's going to happen next. Like nobody quite knew what was going on. Even towards the end of the year, like nobody quite knew. They're like, Hey, is Jim coming? Like people in, in the front office had no idea. They're like, we think so, but we're not quite sure. Like, I really don't know. Like that was the sense. And going back, you know, a, a few months to that, that, all that stuff was happening. 
we had heard reports of, okay, there was some unhappiness in the organization and, you know, you know, ownership isn't happy with how things are going. And then in, in the organization, considering how many people have lost their jobs and have gone out, it's already a pretty thin front office as it is. And I do think there was a lot of like concern and frustration about how things were going and a lack of communication too. And they just didn't know where they were standing. And I think that caused a lot of uneasiness in, internally. And that's why I made the point of, and you mentioned this, Nick, either make the move or back your guys. Cause it's not yeah. good. Like this is, this is unhealthy. You right can't now. leave the guy as much as people hate him. You can't leave him yeah. in limbo. Yeah. You can't, you can't do it for your organization because it affects everybody else. It affects your AGM and affects the people working underneath you. Perfect example is maybe Travis green this whole season. They left him exactly. in limbo. Exactly. Right. So I think what they needed to do was either back your guy publicly with all this going on or make the change and they backed their guy. I do think this, you know, just up until recently, I did buy into some of the buzz that he may not be back. But the reason I never, I never went off the 50-50 aspect of it is because literally nobody knew what was going to happen. And if anybody told you they knew, they were just guessing. Absolutely. Because even people in the York, like even Jim didn't know what was going to happen, right? Like these people had no idea during the final week or so when they were making a decision, nobody really knew what was going to happen. Like nobody had any sense. So that's why I didn't move off the 50-50. Even that day when the reports came out that, you know, Jim's going to get fired, because I heard the same thing. We all heard the same thing, right? I mean, you, you know, word spread so quickly. And then when I started checking in with team sources, all I kept hearing was, we have no idea. We have no idea. We don't know what's going on. We're 50-50. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. So as soon as when I, that, so it was never nailed down. So I, the whole time I thought, okay, nobody really knows what's going to happen. There's a good chance that he might go. I do think their entire, my theory here is it's not me reporting any, anything. My theory is when they got together with ownership, and started like, you know, deciding what to do that they were okay with letting Jim go. But with the whole way the Sedin thing is working out now, that it makes sense for them to be like, okay, the Sedins aren't going to come and be the GM and the president right away. And if they're going to be groomed to be taken over, if that's our plan, if they're going to be groomed to be taken over in, in a few years, then does it make sense to hire another GM and then have them come in and have all these new people try to work together and figure this out? Or do, does it make more sense to push another year here and see what happens? And I think that's what they did. And so you have now Sicilians coming in, working under Jim, who they're familiar with. And then who knows what happens in a year or two? Jim only has two years left, right? And maybe if this year goes sideways, Sedin's already, maybe they step in. But I do think there was serious consideration into moving off of Jim. And once they decided on the Sedin's coming in and they decided on the Sedin's wanting to take some time to kind of figure out how this is going to work, that it made the most sense if that's going to be the case to bring Jim back. So I don't think, you know, it was a certainty Jim was coming back. And I do think there was a serious deliberation and, and serious consideration to not having him back. But when they came up with the whole Sedin solution and the Sedins made it very clear that they're not going to be wanting to take over right away, that this was a pathway that made sense. And I wouldn't be surprised. And I'm just not me reporting this because I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if Sedin said, it makes sense for Jim to stay and for us to work with a guy that we know a little bit here. That's a classic big J move. I'm not reporting, but let me just drop some knowledge. That's a classic. That's a classic big J move. I like it. That's why we have you back. That's why you're the first recurring guest on this show. You can do stuff like that. Uh, Sat, I know. Sat, I know you're a busy guy. So I just want to ask quickly about yeah. the whole. We'll end on the whole Sadine situation. First of all, I love the timing of the news coming out, and I don't think it's any coincidence that Darren Drager reports it right as you know, the fire bending movement seems to be reaching a conclusion, right? Like that's, a, that's a tactful leak by someone in Aquilini's. But right. it, it, I thought at the time, you know, okay, this is just a smokescreen. Like people are not going to buy using, you know, the two most beloved Canucks ever as some sort of PR move to, you know, distract everybody. Like, hey, over here, Sadines, right. Sadines, don't worry about the whole betting situation over here, over here. Look at Sadines. Remember the Sadines? Yeah. It's stuff, it's stuff like that. And I remember at the time thinking, okay, this is a clear distraction, but it sounds like, you know, they want to be a part of hockey operations. They want to be a part of this organization going forward. It still hasn't been official yet. So I guess, at the, again, we're recording this Monday afternoon. So what is the holdup in that sense? What is it just about their role, their, their position within the organization? What's, what's the whole situation surrounding Henrik and Daniel Sedin? Well, you know, I don't have anything really further to add to what's been kind of reported already. I know Rick's mentioned this. I know Friedman mentioned it. And I think Dranser also said the same thing that, you know, they're really trying to nail down what their overall role is going to be. 
And I do think that, you know, they are talking to everybody and, and on Trevor talked to global and there was a clip there that he, you know, he kind of mentioned that they know what they're getting into. And, yeah, that, that, you know, that's a very ringing endorsement. Very, very, yeah. no, <laughs> but, but I, I, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we read into those sort of things, but I, I get what he was trying to say, but they've been talking to a lot of people. They've been talking to people that work here too, right? And they're trying to nail it down. They're very wise people in that sense too. Like they're not going to put themselves in a position where I think they also want to have assurances that, okay, this is how it's going to go. This is the way it's going to be. Here's how we're going to be doing things and how is this process going to work? I think they want some stuff in writing. I think they want it to be really nailed down so they don't have surprises a year in. Like, I think that's what it is more than anything. And I do think it's, a, you know, for them also trying to figure out exactly what suits them. Like, I don't think this is a situation where they're, they're still hem, hemming and hawing about whether they want to do this. Like, I think they are going to do this. They, they are going to be here. I think they're just being really meticulous about what their role is going to be and how it's all going to be written down and what the expectations are and how things aren't going to change. I think they want certain assurances that the landscape doesn't necessarily change in six months again or a year from now. Now, you know what I mean? That we have this thing that we want to do, but, and I think that's pretty much what everybody has reported that they're really just trying to nail down what the proper role is and they are going to have influence. Like they are going to have, you know, influence on how they do things. It doesn't mean they're going to come in and, and, and want to trade everybody and, and try to run the show right away. But I do think they want to have a strong voice at the table. So what do you think their role will be once they join the organization? Like, it, are they going to be called like assistant, co-assistant GMs or, or what have you? Like, what's, what do you think they want from, from the role? Uh, see, I, don't, I, can't, I can't say necessarily what the, what the title is going to be, but I could see, I could see something like, um, something like, I could see VP titles. I could see AGM titles. I could see player development titles, right? I could see, you know, I could see them, you know, I know they have guys that run that too, like, you know, what Ryan Johnson does, but he's the GM of Utica or I guess Abbotsford now. You can come up with different roles. You can call them, you know, you can call them, uh, you know, player development. You can call them, you know, AGMs. You can call them um, VPs. You can call them special advisors. You can call them just pretty much anything you want. I would think it would have to do something with player development. Like, I think that's kind of the way they would go down. And I think some of the stuff that's been reported is that they're going to be working with yeah, Abbotsford, uh, with, with the kids there as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see a, a developmental title next to your name one way or another. And it may be, like, it's not going to be a GM, obviously, but I think it could be a GM, but it could be like something like that, like a developmental hockey ops title. Like, it's a very clear hockey ops title. Okay, so they want to be involved in kind of the, the player development side, at least the start, right? Like I see a lot of people compare to, you know, the, the Chris Drury situation in, in New York, right. Where he was obviously groomed to be eventually the GM of the Rangers, right. After their whole uh, Tom Wilson incident, yeah. right. He was kind of thrust in there, but so, it, so it sounds like it's going to be something like that where they're half a, they don't want to j- jump into it right away. They want to kind of slowly learn the biz. Yes. And I think they want to learn like in, and knowing the Sedins too, they always want to start from the beginning. And where do you want to start from the beginning? I think you, you want to understand your developmental system, number one. I, th- I think if you're running an organization, you got to start from the ground up. And the first thing you got to do is, okay, what, what is our minor league system looking like? What's the developmental system looking like? W- what is the very basis of our organization and work out that way? So if you're, you know, if by the sounds of it, they're going to start off with AHL and development, well, you're starting at the very bottom first and not the bottom in the sense of like, oh, a entry level job, but the foundation of your organization, because you start from the foundation all the way up. So if you kind of learn how that scouting process works, how the player development process works at the AHL level, and then from then on, you probably expand and, and start doing more of the pro stuff on the NHL level, some of the bigger stuff on the NHL level. I think that they want to kind of get their hands on as many different things as possible and really get a comprehensive understanding of what it takes to run an organization. All right, we are back. Shout out to Sadiar Shah for popping on the podcast. Much appreciated. A great conversation once again with Sad. Okay, so as is per tradition with, I guess, this podcast, for the next few weeks and the last few episodes, I want to get my thoughts so far on the Stanley Cup playoffs. Let's start off with, I guess, Tampa Bay, Carolina. That was a gutsy win. We're recording this on Monday. That was a gutsy win game one by the Lightning. That is the win of a Stanley Cup champion. You grind out a win on the road, take away home ice advantage. And I love Carolina. I picked them to win the Cup, actually. I thought Carolina's a really deep team. 
great blue line, maybe a bit of a question mark in net, but Tampa Bay with Kucherov, I think people forgot Tampa Bay with Kucherov is just an entirely different animal. Still only down one nothing, Carolina. They can still come back to win this series. But I'm regretting not picking. I'm regretting not picking the Lightning. I did pick them to beat the Florida Panthers. But Tampa Bay with Nikita Kucherov. They look like they're firing on all cylinders right now. And they look like maybe the, the best team in that Eastern Conference. I guess there's no conferences really this season. But the best team in that sort of East zone uh, right now. Boston and the New York Islanders. Bruins won uh, game one pretty convincingly. Again, it's tempting to say it's going to be Boston, Tampa. But at the same time, look, the New York Islanders, people always count them out playoff time. I picked Pittsburgh to beat them round one, but teams always seem to underestimate them and fans too. fans underestimate them. I think they will make this a series. I think they can tie it. We're recording this on Monday afternoon. I think they can tie this up at 1-1 and at least make this series competitive. I don't think the Bruins are winning this series 4-1 like they did against like they did against Washington. Colorado and Las Vegas. Colorado, man, what a, what an ass whooping they delivered the Vegas Golden Knights. I don't think that game is all Robin Lehner's fault, but I I this is the playoffs. You can't be resting guys. And I know Fleury's, you know, getting up there in age. He probably needs the rest after a seven-game series, but this is the playoffs. Every game counts. You can't be resting your starting goalie, especially against a team like Colorado. You're down already one nothing against Colorado. That's a big hole to come out of. That's a big hole. And to rest a guy like Flurry for Laner, and Laner's no slouch. He's a decent goalie, but he hasn't been playing at the level of Marc-Andre Flurry recently. So that was head-scratcher. Colorado. People, Canadian media, Canadian media need to put some respect on Nathan McKinnon's name. This guy has been the best player in the playoffs for probably two straight seasons now. He's getting it done again in the playoffs, unlike a couple of players from Edmonton and a couple of players from Toronto that the Canadian media love to slob over. Nathan McKinnon is getting it done once again. The playoffs, that goal he scored, whew, oh my God, two of them, no look, and then just blowing by the defenseman. I think it was Nick Hag. McKinnon's a whole different animal, and he actually gets it done in the playoffs, unlike those players in Edmonton and Toronto. You know who I'm talking about. Now, the big series, the big series, the big game tonight, Toronto-Montreal, Game 7 in Toronto. Man, I, I, I haven't been this nervous for a game that hasn't involved the Vancouver Canucks in quite a while. If the Leafs lose this game, the Leafs lose this game, this will be an absolute choke job for the ages. They will never be able to live this down, that core. The fans, they've been through a lot, but that core, this is the best chance they have of making a serious run in the playoffs. A path to the final four, lay down in front of them, and if they blow a 3-1 series lead, then it's time to make some serious decisions about that core. Mitch Marner, mini Mitch Marner, getting paid $11 million, not doing shit so far in this series. Same with Austin Matthews, hasn't really been doing anything. I'm laying out my prediction right now, right before Game 7. I'm calling it a 5-4 Montreal win after the Leafs go up 4-1. The comeback by Montreal started after a Jack Campbell soft goal, as is per Leafs tradition. Their goalie lets in a soft goal in Game 7. The Leafs choke away the series, lose this in seven games. Leafs Nation in tears. That's what I want to see. I want to see them suffer. I want to see them suffer. And if they win, good. They were supposed to win. But all the pressure, all the pressure in this game is on the Toronto Maple Leafs. Make no mistake about it. It is all on Toronto. Montreal wasn't supposed to force this series to seven, and they managed to do it. So all the pressure is on Toronto. And uh, if they can't get it done now, then you got to make some serious decisions about that core. You really do. Anyways, that is today's episode of Power of the Towel, part of the Next Misconduct Network, a podcast. I'm your host, Nick Bondi. 
Once again, subscribe to the network wherever you get podcasts. Leave and rate us five stars. Very much appreciated. Once again, this is Power of the Towel Part, the next misconduct network of podcasts. My name is Nick Bondi. Thank you for listening.